You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleinman. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. On today's episode, we discussed a 1946 essay by Raya Dunyovskaya called The Nature of the Russian Economy, in which she talks about her thesis that the USSR was a state capitalist society. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be discussing the nature of the Russian economy. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. We are recording this current event section on Wednesday, October 27th. And we're going to be talking about a piece that came out uh, three days ago on Rolling Stone on October 24th. Uh, The piece is by Hunter Walker, and it's been talked about a lot in the media in the past three days, so people are probably familiar with it. The article is called January 6th Protest Organizers Say They Participated in Dozens of Planning Meetings with Members of Congress and White House Staff. Basically, two sources have spoken to Rolling Stone, two sources who were involved with the planning organizing of the January 6th insurrection and said that they worked closely in different capacities with several members of Congress in preparation of the attack, implying that Republican members of Congress knew what was being planned and even claiming that there was a blanket pardon dangled in front of some of those organizers by by one of the Congress people. Um, of course, there's been your typical like surrealist gaslighting on the side of the right since the piece came out saying that you know there's nothing to see here of course congress people talk to protesters blah 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 but two democrats in the house have called for the um, ouster of anyone involved with directly planning their insurrection and there's been you know speculation as to whether this might whether this might lead to more concrete evidence being put on the table that there was some direct coordination between uh, lawmakers and the insurrectionists. I just want to point out that this is the all Shackmanite publication uh, episode. We're talking about one Shackmanite publication, uh, Rolling Stone, and uh, in the main segment we're going to be talking about a article by Rydunyevskaya in The New International, which was a publication edited by Max Shackman. Rolling Stone is edited by Noah Shackman. Huh. Uh, so this is a Radio <laughs> for Humanity exclusive. I mean, it's new for us, and I don't think there's any <laughs> other podcast anywhere in the world that discusses two, two, not one, but two Shackmanite wow. publications in oh. the same episode. Two, two for one deal. So donate, donate. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, people were talking about this as like Pulitzer Prize stuff. You know, I don't know how hard it was to get. My, my sense of it is that the people who spoke with Rolling Stone were allowed to do that. They did it with the, the knowledge of the, the House committee, you know, investigating the, the insurrection. So it's probably with their approval and so forth. And there's a lot of documentation that Hunter Walker at uh, Rolling Stone indicates that Rolling Stone has seen, so obviously, you know, the committee is seeing it as, as well. There's a lot of stuff. 
So I think the committee has been working like this, kind of like leaking things out bit by bit. For whatever reason, I don't know. I mean, maybe to stay in the news, maybe to let the other side know how much they've got the goods on them, so you better, you know, cooperate, you know, turn state's evidence and so forth. I'm not sure exactly what the what the, the strategy or tactics might be, but it's really hard evidence from from everything we, we can see, because they've got the, the two sources, they've confirmed it with the third source, uh, and it just goes along with like everything we knew. We saw in front of us, we also have another recent revelation coming from uh, Washington Post that there was this whole command center, some official conclave of all the biggies, Bannon and Giuliani and this other lawyer, John Eastman, and they're all coordinating how they're going to steal the election from the Willard uh, Hotel. So you got that war room, as they called it, command center. You've got all these Congress people, and you've got the White House. These people said they were, in, you know, in contact with the Congress people and the rally organizers and all these. It, it, it was all it was all connected. So it was like this multi-pronged operation, thought out, very sophisticated. It wasn't just, you know, you hear Marjorie Taylor Greene, you might think that she's a, a wacko. Well, she is a wacko, but she's not a wacko just, you know, working on her own. Yeah, a piece like this has like some new revelations and then also has sort of old information that we already knew. And of course, we can probably guess a lot of the involvement and coordination based on just the behavior of lawmakers around that period last January. But I do have to say that every time new revelations come out, it's like more surprising like the scale and the audacity of the coordination. Just like, you know, on the first day or two after the riot, one had one impression of how bad it was, but as more and more footage and documentation of the insurrection came to light, it was like even more shocking and disturbing how crazy the entire incident was. I mean, it really was a coordinated attempt to overthrow the United States government by all sorts of actors within the government and outside of the government. Right. And I think one of the most important things about the organization and different kinds of people, Congress people, non-White House people, the White House people, the orange slime himself was involved. What this does is give the lie to the current spin. Oh, uh, we were just challenging the certification of the election. We were just asking questions about whether this state's electors should be certified because of this problem and that problem. The thing is, there's this insurrection going on outside and breaking inside at the same time that these people on the inside are doing their legal stuff challenging the certification they are giving the insurrection time to organize and grow you know and fight the cops and breach the capitol building while they're doing this okay so these are not two unrelated things this idea, oh, well, you know, we were just engaged in this legal activity and we spoke at this legal rally. Well, yeah, you let the grunts be your stormtroopers and you don't dirty your hands. I mean, Orange Slime went back to the White House after he says, I'm going to march down there with you. No, he's not that stupid. So everybody's got their role, okay? But that's the way, you know, these, these things work. People do their roles. Uh, so it was one big very coordinated effort. 
Yeah, and a lot of this information we already know. We like we know that Mo Brooks was wearing body armor when he spoke before the insurrection. We know, you know, that members of Congress were tweeting out Nancy Pelosi's uh, position while a mob was looking to kill her. Um, it's just frustrating how slowly this entire process is taking for some kind of consequences to befall these Republicans, and we're kind of running out of time. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 January of, of 23, if the Republicans take control of anything, that's the end of this, you know? So, uh, especially if they take control of the House. They're, they're trying to run it out, but, you know, th- these things take time. I remember Watergate, which was like a really slow drip of information that we're getting drip. You know, in retrospect, you, you, you get the story and it's all put together. You know the highlights and it's it's very clear. At, at the time when it's happening, it's a mystery, you know. it's uh, That's the way these things are. Well, it just seems like we're in this era where uh, Republicans just do their crimes out in the open and say they're not crimes. And then the rule of law has to kind of scramble to find some way to hold them accountable for these like increasingly audacious acts of illegality. And we're like running out of time before democracy collapses and any chances of accountability fall apart. Yeah, and they've got they've got enough judges. Trump, that was kind of his last gasp thing was, let's kick this over to the Supreme Court. He, he, but, you know, even some of the lower courts, they've got their, a, lot of, a lot of their people embedded throughout the legal system. I mean, it's, it's amazing, given all of that, how poorly they did challenging uh, the election results in the courts. But I think they're taking care of this right now. They're showing, here's what happens to you if you don't act, absolutely toe the line. We're not going to allow Republicans to deviate from this. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the segment, um, some members of Congress have called for these uh, collaborators to be kicked out of Congress. Um, one of them was AOC. She had a tweet yesterday. Andrew, you have that tweet in front of you, right? And she wrote, any member of Congress who helped plot a terrorist attack on our nation's capital must be expelled. This was a terror attack. 138 injured, almost 10 dead. Those responsible remain a danger to our democracy, our country, and human life in the vicinity of our capital uh, and beyond, uh, etc. A lot of people, Representative Cory Bush, another, you know, major progressive in the uh, Democratic uh, caucus in the House, she tweeted a reminder uh, about her resolution proposing an investigation and expulsion of any members who may have helped to incite the riot. There's a real split taking place between, like, you know, the, the Glenn Greenwalds of the world and Platypus and Ben Burgess and those people who are saying, oh, you know, it was a, a protest that got out of hand and the guy from Platypus, you know, we talked about this on an earlier episode, you know, talking about these insurrectionists, you know, they entered the Capitol building. You know, as, as if it was like a guided tour and, and, and so forth. And, you know, these folks that were in danger and still are in danger, I don't think that they're to the right of Platypus or, or, or Burgess or certainly Greenwald, you know, and they're like, no, this was terrorism and we got to get rid of these people. Uh, the tragedy is they're not going to be able to pass a resolution to expel these folks. Because they don't have enough votes. Because you, you, you need a supermajority in, in, 
in the house to, to do that. Only something like conviction and criminal charges or something would do it, and then only maybe. Looking at these kind of procedural things and, and the, the Justice Department, these people are not going to be able to get us justice. You know, it's going to have to come from organization from below, and the, we can't look to the Democratic Party for that, I don't think. That's not what they're about. We need to, to organize ourselves and be able to fight these people by the means that are necessary to fight them. You can't fight with, with two hands tied behind your back and blindfolded. And that's the strictures under which the Democratic Party is saying they're going to operate. It's crazy. Well, that's all the time we have for this current event section. Up next, our discussion of the nature of the Russian economy. We are recording this conversation on October 25th, and we're going to be talking about a piece from 1946 uh, by Raya Dunyevskaya. The piece is called The Nature of the Russian Economy. And in this essay, Dunyevskaya lays out her argument for uh, why she interpreted the Soviet Union as a state capitalist society. Uh, in order to do so, she really had to delve deeply into essential categories of what constitutes a capitalist society. Uh, to be able to distinguish the different phenomenal forms of, a, of capitalist societies from each other. And so we're going to be going through some of the main parts of that argument in our discussion today. I will put a link to the piece in the description. Um, Andrew, I think you might have some better explication of the historical context in which the essay was written. Do you want to go through that now? This nature of the Russian economy is one of three pieces that all kind of go together. There's the analysis of the Russian economy, which is a statistical analysis of the direction of development, the direction of growth of the Russian economy under Stalin, where the source material is the Russians' own five-year plans. Okay, that's the analysis. And the problem with just reading the analysis is if you don't understand the theoretical context, it doesn't mean much. It just sounds like, oh, it's very interesting. They're increasing means of production uh, and not so much consumer goods. Of course, that means the workers are starving, but you know, hey. Okay, so, but the point is for Dunyevskaya, also based on conception, you know, put forward at the same time by C.L.R. James, this direction of development, a preponderance of the growth of means of production is against means of consumption, that indicated that it's a capitalist economy. Now, what happened is uh, Dunyevskaya is in an organization that mostly does not want to recognize uh, at the time when she she wrote this, they didn't want to recognize that Russia was a, a capitalist society. The main leader was Max Schachman, said it was a Russia was a bureaucratic collectivist society, and you had Joseph Carter, who said it was bureaucratic imperialist. So what they did is they allowed the publication uh, in the theoretical journal of the uh, party, uh, the New International, they allowed the anal uh, analysis to be published which didn't contain the theoretical framework and context for understanding it. Dunyevskaya fought and fought, and then eventually, several years later, they say, okay, we'll publish this nature of the Russian economy. Uh, and there's a third piece called Labor and Society that Dunyevskaya viewed as, you know, all three things, labor and society, the nature of the Russian economy, and the analysis of the Russian economy, all of them she viewed really as one study. And then labor and society is more of a uh, very philosophical, longer-term overview of the place of labor in, in various societies. So that never got uh, 
published uh, in that organization, you know, headed by Shackman, the Workers' Party. But eventually they did publish this Nature of the Russian Economy in, in two parts at the end of December of uh, 1946 and the, in the beginning of 1947 in January. So I think one of the hardest things for people who aren't familiar with Duniaskaya's thesis about state capitalism and the USSR, I think one of the first obstacles people have to understanding the concept is understanding how a planned economy could be capitalist, not just on the left, but in, on the right as well, or just in like mainstream economic discourse. Usually planning and markets are counterposed as these polar opposites, and socialism is uh, associated with planning and markets are associated with capitalism. So a piece like this, I think, is maybe surprising to people or, and, and it makes them have to question this basic counterposition of planning and markets in order to get to some deeper economic categories. I guess the short version of what she's arguing here is that the planners in Russia ended up doing exactly exactly the same thing that the markets would do. And that therefore implies that there's more fundamental economic laws in a capitalist society, which can be executed by planning or executed by markets, but which are not determined by the presence of markets or planning, but are more fundamental. I mean, I grew up in an era of the so-called mixed economies, right? This situation doesn't change that much, but people give it different names. But uh, when I was an undergraduate economics student, you know, in economics, I took a course in comparative economic systems. And it was like indicative planning in France, indicative planning in Sweden, indicative planning in Norway, indicative planning in Denmark, indicative... I mean, it was just all of the Western European countries had planning it wasn't the same exact kind of planning as in as in, you know the USSR but it, there was economic planning and uh, you know Dunyevskaya points out that there was planning in Nazi Germany and in Japan under the government that was allied with the Nazis and so forth so it's it's not that the capitalist countries don't plan you know there, there's a matter of degree but here's I think the fundamental issue what is it you mean by planning in this piece, towards the end, Dunyevskaya quotes James, uh, J.R. Johnson, you know, her co-thinker, C.R. James, and he writes, The experience of Stalinist Russia since 1936 has exploded the idea that planning by any class other than the proletariat can ever reverse the laws of motion of capitalist production. Planning becomes merely the statified instead of the spontaneous submission to these laws. So planning becomes merely the statified submission to the laws of motion of capitalist production. So it's a question of who's in control. Are the planners in control of the motion of their economy or are the laws of capitalist production in control and the planners just trying to make do the best they can within the confines and the, the, the framework of those laws. I, I, I can plan to uh, bail out the water from the basement, you know, after it floods. <laughs> what kind of planning is that, right? So I, th I think that's the, that's the that, that's the essential question here. Yeah, I mean, sure, you 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 can plan how you respond to economic necessities over which you have no control, but is it, is it planning if you have no control over those economic necessities? As she describes in this piece, all these features of the Russian economy: the fact that the the workers become 
poorer as the intelligentsia becomes richer, the fact that workers have to be compelled to work, the fact that uh, the law of value operates and prices correspond to the, the, the law of value, the basic investment decisions taken by the state in terms of investing in means of production or consumer goods, these all are completely mirror the sort of features of what were called free market capitalist economies. So the fact that the planners were forced to make the same decisions that capitalist states were or capitalist countries were is evidence that they were compelled by the same internal logic of capital that capitalist countries were or, or other capitalist countries were. I, I think that this is a very important point. And Dunyevskaya was writing this in a polemical context where, uh, you know, the Workers' Party had mostly conceptions that Russia was not capitalist. It was said to be bureaucratic collectivist, bureaucratic imperialist. And they would say, oh, well, this is, you know, because the bureaucracy is bureaucracy, we need a political revolution and so forth and so on. I think she does a very good job of showing why, you know, putting the case for why it's the case that these are economic necessities, just as you said. It fundamentally goes back to the question of the direction of Russian development. The direction of development was such that industry grew and consumer production did not. Industry grew at the expense of consumer production. That's the um, faster growth of the means of production as against the means of consumption. Once you've got that, of course, you don't have the consumer goods. Of course, the workers have to be squeezed. So it's 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 not just like some accidental or feature. It's not due to the ill will of the people in control of the economy. It's the fact that the direction of development makes it inevitable. I, I thought that her discussion of how labor is compelled to work more was really interesting. She talks about the reserve army of labor and how there was definitely a reserve army of labor in the Soviet Union. And she talks about stakhanovism and the fact that people were basically working like piece rate labor where they were rewarded for working faster. And these are like the hallmarks of capitalist production are the fact that people are compelled to work because they can be replaced by the excess labor pool, the reserve army of labor, and the fact that incentives are put in place to make people work harder and to reward people who can work harder. This is like exactly what happens in capitalist production and it's exactly what happened in production and the Soviet Union. Yeah, in, in, in Capital, in Volume 1 of Capital, Marx says that peace rates are the form of payment most fitting to capitalist production because it makes the worker an accessory in her own exploitation. In other words, in order to get more pay, you drive yourself in addition to the boss's driving you to produce more, you know, work harder. So so peace rates in general and the, the Stakhanovite emulation, you know, everybody should strive to be just like Stakhanov and the special privileges and pay given to Stakhanovites, it was all meant to increase the, the rate of exploitation through people just working harder. There's this discussion earlier in the piece where she talks about this argument the Stalinists made that the Soviet Union was not governed by the average rate of profit, which uh, the Stalinists called um, the law of capitalism. In other words, instead of investment just flowing to whatever industries are the most profitable, the, the state directed investment. And sometimes investment went to industries that were less profitable, they claimed. 
But doing this guy's critique of this is is really interesting. I mean, first of all, she first, I think she points out that calling this the law of capitalism is a little bit inadequate. I was going to say much. It's a little bit much. You know, it's a little inadequate, right? Yeah. I mean, but I I think the main point that she's getting at is that the consumer producing industries showed a high rate of profit for a phony reason. And that was because of the high turnover tax uh, imposed on consumer goods. And a turnover tax is like a value-added tax or a sales tax, but it's, uh, it gets compounded at every stage of production. So if you got one plant that supplies to another plant that supplies to another plant, and there's you know production in all these stages, you get a turnover tax at every stage of production. So because of the counting of the funds that flowed to the government through this tax system, by counting them as part of profit, it looked like the consumer goods industry's profit was high. And relative to that, the heavy industry, you know, production of means of production, it looked like it had low profit. But in fact, it was really uh, the reverse. You know, when you look beyond the official categories and the way the books are kept, Donetskaya pointed to the fact that, like, if you look at the pay of, you know, factory managers, it wasn't based on the profitability of the industry in terms of these official statistics, but the pay of the, the factory directors was based on the, basically the size of their capital, which basically means, you know, if they got a bigger firm, they get more pay, smaller enterprise, less pay. So, Which is how it appears in a, other, other capitalist societies, that the size of the capital determines the mass of the profit. Uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't always directly uh, correspond to the pay of the CEOs and so forth. Right, right. Uh, their, their pay does vary according to profitability of the firm from one year to the next. But, I mean, in general, <laughs> the highest paid CEOs are those who are the CEOs of the biggest companies. You know, that that is that is true. So this goes to the question of, you know, is the state directing investment accumulation somehow contrary to the law of value, somehow contrary to spontaneous economic norms. And what Denise Guy is saying is, is, no, I mean, that's really not the case. The light industry, the consumer goods production is, is really not more profitable. And it just looks that way. She also has, has to address this question of private property and what that means for a state capitalist society. Or I suppose of the communist society, right? Because a lot of times we still hear this association of you know state pro- state property is not being capitalist property, or we you know you hear the people on the left talk about needing to like decommodify industries, which just means like the state takes them over, as if that is counter to capitalist production. I mean, in, in some in some quarters, this has been turned into something that's true by definition. That's the way it was when I grew up, you know. I mean, capitalism is private ownership, socialism is state ownership or common ownership. End of story. That's a certain conception. Yeah. In the Soviet Union, basically there is state property and a class of intelligentsia that run the state and benefit from their control of the means of production, had lifestyles that were considerably more lavish and opulent compared to the Russian masses. They vacationed in their dachas and they had all sorts of access to food and commodities. Well, there were like famines in the countryside and, and such. And they had a private security state to keep them safe from the masses. And 
they got their kids into good schools. Yeah, operated above the rule of law, and they were just a different flavor of the capitalist class. The fact that the property was owned by the state, you still had a class of capitalists who were running the state. Right. I mean, there is a difference between them and, and, you know, classical Western capitalists. These people are not legally the owners and their uh, income is not legally speaking income from ownership of property. You know, I mean, Dernier Sky points out in the same piece, like, you know, you've got the, the head of some big steel company and he's a CEO and he's an employee just like the, the steel worker. And so he gets salary, worker gets wages, but it, it, this is just legal nonsense. The CEO is, is getting some of the, the surplus value, you know, some of the, the, the property income generated in, in, in production. It's not income from, from work. I mean, I think the, 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 the problem that we face is we can point to fact after fact after fact. On the other side, we'll come up with differences, you know, like... Oh, you know, this isn't exactly the same as in classical capitalism. Well, yeah, it's not exactly the same. So, to my mind, what this all goes back to, you know, this whole question of capitalism being about private property and so forth, it's all a question of what are your concepts? And it's very important, and that's what makes this this whole discussion important today, is what we're really talking about is what is your conception of capitalism and what is it you're fighting against is it just that you don't like people who have private ownership or are you talking about a whole different society in which the direct producers are in control and there are no economic laws over which nobody's got control that are in fact really dominant and really running the whole show so this is the kind of thing that does has never been discussed on the left, still doesn't get discussed on the left to any real degree. What is capitalism? What is this enemy that we're fighting? What needs to be changed to make it different? What are we for and what are are we against? So to my mind, it's a very important set of questions, but it's not something that can be answered purely by reference to facts because it's really a question of what is your understanding of the facts. So, I mean, this is, this is why, you know, the Dunyevskaya and James and them didn't make any headway, you know, within the Workers' Party, didn't make any headway within the uh, Socialist Workers' Party that they were in before and then after, because these people had a fundamentally different conception of what capitalism is. And what that really means is they had a different conception in the end, of what they're against and what they're fighting for. Yeah, it's. I'm glad you said that because I think sometimes the question of the mode of production in the Soviet Union sounds like an academic question, but I see echoes of this discussion like all the time when I'm reading, say, like Jacobin magazine, and I'm or hearing people's proposals for like eco-socialism or something, and I hear or the decommodification, which yeah. you mentioned, yeah. Yeah, the this decommodification thing, which is like really a common trope. You hear a lot of the same conceptions of capitalism that just juxtapose private property with state property, planning with markets, and assume that if we, we just are planning and the state is running things, that that's 
some some type of not capitalism i mean we even have like this really confusing notion of socialism where socialism is something that's like something in degrees uh, you know this idea of, like you were saying before the mixed economies or something you can have like some socialism and some capitalism you know you have this, the social democrats saying well i'm a socialist but i'm not against markets or i'm not against some you know certain types of capitalist production it's just it just gets very confusing and muddy the whole discussion yes very much so um po politics always seems to be like that I don't know why, but it always seems to be like that. You know, definitions of the terms morph, things become their opposite. What liberal means, you know, used to mean one thing, then it meant its opposite. Then nobody would use the term liberal, and now they use the term progressive. And You know, so it's not only on, on the, the Marxist left or something this occurs. This kind of thing happens all, all the time uh, for some reason. I, I don't know. To, to my mind, the, 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 the fundamental problem with all of these conceptions that would say, ah, Russia was not capitalist society, and it doesn't matter whether you were for or against it, the people in the Workers' Party, Shackman and Carter and all those people, were they were not in favor of it. They said it was an exploitative society. But still, they wouldn't say that it was capitalist. Why? They were hanging on to really superficial features of classical capitalism and saying only something that has these features is capitalism. That's a fundamentally perverted way of understanding anything in, is in terms of a laundry list of features. I mean, you could say, you could say like, human beings are animals that have two ears. Well, what about Vincent van Gogh, you know, Van Gogh? He only had one ear. Or he cut off an ear, right? So did he become... Was he a human being that then became a non-human being? I mean, this is just nutty stuff in the end. You can't understand the essence of something or its nature, to use the term in the article. You can't understand what something is inherently by jotting down a whole list of features and going through a checklist and seeing what conforms and what doesn't. Yeah. I, f I think maybe we had a discussion along these lines maybe even over a year ago on the podcast discussing the idea of fascism and this approach to defining societies as fascist that requires them to all check off a certain list of, of check boxes from a list no brown shirts red manga hats yeah not fascist yeah yeah i mean you know come on back to the notion of the intelligentsia as the ruling class of russia um she says something interesting when she says that the mode of production called forth the intelligentsia. And I think that statement maybe helps a little bit with this dispute over the nature of the mode of production and the Soviet Union, because it's sometimes you get a narrative about the USSR in which, you know, it's just the, the problem is just that like bad people took over, then bad things happened in the society. But she she's not making that kind of argument. It's not just that like some bad people took over. Um, she's saying that this ruling class is something that was produced by the mode of production, that there were these pressures on the Soviet Union to conform to the law of value and to produce surplus value and to discipline labor to produce more surplus value. And that in that sort of society, a ruling class is inevitably uh, produced. Yeah. And in her book, Marxism and Freedom, which was published about a decade uh, after a little bit more than a decade after this this article appeared, she extended that when she t 
talked about how Stalin came to power. It's the same basic conception, but she said, you know, Stalin did not create, you know, this monstrous totalitarian society. It created Stalin. He was the kind of leader adequate to what was happening in Russia. If you were going to industrialize in hothouse fashion with the, the workers having no power, that's the kind of rule that you needed. And, you know, they were able to generate the kind of leader for decades who fit the bill. And some of the historiography about Stalin you hear, you know, you rarely hear anyone saying, okay, well, Stalin just sort of was the some enigma that came on the scene and steered the ship off the cliff into mass terror and starvation. But, but in terms of setting the context for what produced Stalin, it's often a political discussion about the nature of the security state in Russia or the legacy of war communism. and The encirclement of USSR by the capitalist powers in the West. Yeah, all these sort of political questions about what created a certain political culture in the Soviet leadership that uh, produced people who are very ruthless and bloodthirsty. But she's not making that sort of claim about like just political institutions. It's based in a certain conception of a mode of production that required severe discipline of the the masses in order to produce this surplus and, and industrialize quickly. Absolutely correct, yeah. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment, but first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. 
To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. In the context of talking about uh, Stahanovism, one small but very interesting section of this article talks about the Stalinist Constitution of 1936. One aspect of this Constitution that she, she refers to here is the principle of, of paying workers, and she says the new slogan put forward by government of the USSR was from each according to his abilities to each according to his labor. And the way that's phrased it sounds so much like what Marx is talking about as the principle of distribution in the lower phase of communist society when he, he speaks of this in the, his critique of the Gotha program. But Dunyevskaya, just very briefly here, refers to something that she analyzed in, in more detail a couple of years before. She wrote this article you know, under her party name, you know, her pen name, F. Forrest or Freddie Forrest. But when the Russian Stalinists uh, revised the law of value, in other words, the official doctrine about what the law of value was, and that they, they said that the law of value operates under socialism, uh, this was during the war, this was 1943, Dunitsky was able to get hold of the text in Russian. She translated it, she got it published in the American Economic Review, and under the name Dunyevskaya, she wrote a relatively short commentary, and at that point, the, the shit hit the fan, all of the Stalinists came out of the woodwork, and they got, you know, well, we, we want equal time in the pages of the American Economic Review. So that was Leo Rogan, that was uh, Paul Baran, later, you know, known as half of Baran and Sweezy, Oscar Lange, uh, who was actually like a social democrat, but he became a you know, big political guy in the Polish communist regime. All these people were like, no, 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 this Raya Dunyevskaya, who we never heard of, she's wrong, blah, 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 blah. She gets her say, they get their say, the American Economic Review allowed her to have a final say. And one, one of the issues that she, she got to was, what is this payment according to labor all about? It's not what Marx was talking about in the critique of the Gotha program. Okay, first of all, he, you know, he, he's very clear that we're talking about a very different mode of production and that the distribution flows from the mode of production. So he, Marx is not saying you're going to have socialism because of the method of payment, but he's saying that if you have a socialist society, what would correspond to that is people would be remunerated according to their labor. But here's the kicker. What labor? How do you measure this labor? What Marx was talking about is the actual amount of labor that people actually do. The amount of time that they work and the intensity, you know, how hard or how fast they work. So if you do more labor, let's say you do double the labor, you get double the remuneration. That is not at all what the Stalinists had in mind. Because it, it, directly in this document where they uh, revised the law of value, they said, well, look, you know, labor in the USSR is highly differentiated according to, you know, skill. So not all labor is equal. I mean, it's like right out of uh, Orwell. It's right out of Animal Farm. You know, 
all, all, all labor is equal, but some labor is more equal than other labor, you know? So they said, so this payment according to labor is according to the quantity and quality of the labor. And so it, it's measured in terms of value. So the, the principle of payment isn't how much work you do and, you know, how hard you work. The principle, and it's enshrined in their constitution and in their doctrine, is if you produce more value, you get more payment. So, I mean, that's a capitalist principle. I mean, because it's, well, it's based on, on not the amount of work that you do, but on how much stuff you produce and the value of that stuff. So I, I think this was a very important thing that she pointed out in the pages of the American Economic Review, and then just briefly she alludes to it here. She says, from each according to his abilities to each according to his labor, which was the official slogan, it's only in reality a method of expressing the law of payment according to value. Yeah, I think it's worth taking a step back and, and thinking about why people have difficulty with this. Because a lot of people have difficulty with it. And I think people have difficulty with the idea that, first of all, with the, distinguishing between how much stuff people produce and how much labor they perform. I mean, to my mind, these are like just totally different concepts. But a lot of people, they can't get it. This is one reason why, I mean, people think that Marx is talking about piece rate payment in the critique of the Gothic program payment according to labor they say that's piece rates no no it's not it has nothing at all to do with how much stuff somebody produces and secondly it has nothing to do with the value of what they produce because it's a socialist society and mark says you know here even in the lower phase of communism as he calls it there isn't value you know there's no exchange of products there's no value there's no uh, abstract labor in the, the sense of that being the determinant of value, this, there's none of that. What he's talking about is people being paid in accordance to how much actual work they do, not according to how much stuff and not according to any, any value attached to that. Anyway, for me, it's, it's, it's all clear. You can point this out, but for some reason, it seems often not to stick. People just seem not to be able to get their heads around it. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on why? Is it because maybe that, you know, because Marx isn't just talking about like the amount of time people work, but also how hard they work, you know, talking about people that might be able to work more intensely than others. And that sounds like people are being rewarded for producing more. Uh, the intensity can sound like, right, how much you produce. Right. You know, what other definition of intensity is, is operating here? You know, in principle, you could measure it by means of ergs, you know, some, some measure of expenditure of energy. You could do that in principle. Or you could perhaps measure, under certain circumstances, you could, you could measure the intensity indirectly by the amount of stuff. Okay, but that breaks down when you think of increases in productivity which is, uh, let's say, labor productivity, you measure by the amount of stuff produced per unit of, of, of labor, right? So if you get an increase in productivity, there's more stuff, but there's not more labor. So you, there's no way of just saying, okay, we're going to measure the uh, amount of labor 
by how much stuff? Because you get more stuff. Is it because people are working more, or is it because the technology has changed and it's now better? So, despite all the measurement problems, I mean, and there are measurement problems, you can maybe approximate under limited circumstances how much work people do, you know, not only by time, but by how much they produce. It breaks down as soon as you begin to talk about increasing productivity. So, sure, Marx is saying, you, you know, you work more intensely, harder, you're, you've done more labor in a lower phase of communism, you're going to be entitled to more remuneration. But the same holds true with regard to time. You work longer time than somebody else. Some people are capable of working longer hours than other people. You work longer, you will have done more labor, and, and by virtue of that, you will be uh, entitled to take more stuff. So it's, it's not different in principle. The, the intensity and uh, how he treats intensity and how he treats time and in terms of c contributing to the amount of work that's done. But especially on the, on the very far left, you, you, you get these uh, criticisms of uh, what Marx says in the critique of the Gotham program, like it's some peace rate scheme or something. I don't know. It's, it's, it's not, not at all. So, Andrew, you already mentioned that in 1943, the Stalinists revised their constitution and claimed that the law of value did operate in the Soviet Union. I'm trying to remember what the argument the Stalinists made was about why that wasn't capitalist. Because the state directs or influences or manages the operation of the law of value to achieve socialist goals. I see. So, something like yeah. that. I don't have the exact formulation, but that that was the line they were putting forward. In other words, for instance, there's the law of value, but we direct capital investment away from the consumer goods industries towards the heavy industries because that's the socialist goal of th that kind of thinking is is that they're they're able to use the law of value in the interest of building a socialist economy rather than the law of value using them to maintain capitalism and existence. So then Dunyevskaya gets into a discussion of how the law of value operated in the Soviet Union, and she says that the supreme law, as she calls it, like the essence of the law of value, is that labor power is paid at its value, right? That's how <clears throat> surplus value can be extracted from workers, because um, they produce more than they're compensated for. And in order for that to happen, the total price of consumer goods um, has to be equalized with the uh, total amount of wages. And so she goes into a discussion of how those prices were dictated by the, the need to sell labor power at its value. I mean, why is she saying this is like the essence or the sine qua non or whatever? She's recalling what Marx says about what differentiates, you know, one uh, social formation and one mode of production from, from the other. And he says in Capital, what differentiates capitalism, whatever he called it, capitalist mode of production, from, from every other society is that labor power is a commodity. Okay, there were commodities, you know, prior to capitalism, but only with capitalism is the commodity form, the be-all and end-all general form of all production, everything produced is a commodity, and the key thing that makes everything commodified is that people's ability to work, their labor power, is itself a commodity. So it's not just that they produce commodities, people themselves are, are commodities, or their labor power is. And he says, in this one little change, 
looks like a little change, there's a world of difference. You have a whole new kind of society. So I think what Donetskaya is getting at here in all of this stuff it isn't expressed maybe the you know in the way that I'm saying it, but what she's getting at is what did it take to turn the Russian workers into commodities, and how did this happen? The other thing happened to maintain them in the state where they had no means of production of their own. They were forced to either starve or sell their labor power. And this is where, where the issue of wages becomes explicable. This is where you can start to understand what's going on with wages. Imagine that wages go too high. Well, then workers can save, and if they save enough, they can extricate themselves from this relationship. So it's not only that the, the people on the top, the classless intelligentsia, are evil. To maintain an adequate supply of workers, workers have to be kept propertyless. That's the same way it works in, uh, in the USA, in France, in the UK, etc., etc. Is this intentional? Is this not intentional? In some cases, it's, it's not. In some cases, it is. I mean, you, you listen to the debate going on in the Democratic Party, Joe Munchkin and his stuff against the child tax credit, it's very, very clear, you know, ah, we need work requirements. In other words, you, people cannot be entitled to anything because this is going to harm work discipline, and what we need is a supply of workers, and this is the, the same stuff driving all of the concern about the extended uh, unemployment insurance benefits. It always goes back to this question of, very simply, if these people are able to live without doing our work for us, they will, and then where the hell are we at? That's the way capitalism runs. That's what it's all about. And that was true in the USSR, and it's true, you know, in every capitalist society. We should probably also point out to those who haven't read the article, The Nature of the, the, nature of the Russian Economy yet, that Dunivsky takes the time to engage with theoretical opponents uh, on this issue of state capitalism in the article. A lot of the stuff in the second part I found very interesting because it goes to theoretical questions within the Trotskyist movement at that time. And she really goes to town, Dunivsky does, on this issue of... Trotsky having said, and basically you're getting the same conception within the Workers' Party majority, slightly different, but basically it's the same thing. Where you've got nationalized property, you've got a worker's state. You know, in other words, where you have nationalized property, it cannot be capitalism. And she, she just, like, refuses to accept this. She says, this is just a fetish. As part of this, I thought one of the most important things she points to was Trotsky claiming that, quote, the property and production relations established by October, that is the October Revolution in 1917, uh, still prevailed in the USSR. The property and production relations, and she says, which relations? Production or property? They're not one and the same thing. There's just a confusion in his thinking there, which for like a major theorist like Trotsky to have committed an error like that, it's, it's first of all, not, not accidental, but it's extremely glaring. You know, she then says, Trotsky always insisted the virtue of the nationalized economy was that it allowed the economy to be planned. And everything we've said about planning, I mean, goes to that issue of whether the economy was planned in the sense of Marxists traditionally having said, you know, we need to overcome the anarchy of capitalism. We need to have an economy that's 
planned by human beings without these alien economic laws in command driving the outcomes. You didn't have planning in, in, in that sense. She says, Soviet planning is no more than a brutal bureaucratic consummation of the fundamental movement of capitalist production towards statification. Andrew, I wonder if you could clear up something for me that's not totally clear in my mind about this article. On one hand, Dunuskaya has this discussion of a passage from Marx where he talks about how the laws of capitalist production would still operate even if all capital was consolidated into one firm or, you know, one state capital, which makes it sound like, you know, the market is superfluous ultimately to the law of value operating in a society. On the other hand, in her discussion of Russia, she talks a lot about how the pressures of the world market impose themselves on the Soviet Union. She uses the example of the price of tractors and how Soviet leaders couldn't just arbitrarily, voluntaristically set prices, but they had to compete with more efficient manufacturers in other parts of the world. And so there was this competition that imposed the workings of the law of value on the society. And it's not clear to me like how those two arguments relate to each other, because one makes it sound like you know competition in the market is not essential. The other makes it sound like it is. Where Marx said this is in volume one of Capital, when he's talking about the accumulation of capital, specifically the law of the concentration and centralization of capital. And the key thing here is centralization, and that's his term for the total capital being held by fewer and fewer people. And he says that the limit of this in any given nation would be reached when the entire capital of the nation was in the hands of one single capitalist or one single capitalist company. And basically, the argument by uh, Dunyevskaya and, and James was, essentially, that's what you had in the USSR, the entire capital of country which remained cap capitalist was in the hands of the, the state, which functioned as a single capitalist. So I, I, I mean, I think where you're going is, is this single capitalist worldwide or is it within one nation? Well, Marx was talking there about one nation. That's the, the premise of the whole uh, discussion. He wasn't saying you could have one single capitalist on a world scale. It's on page 779. He says, in any given branch of industry, centralization would reach its extreme limit if all of the individual capitals invested there were fused into a single capital. In a given society, this limit would be reached only when the entire social capital was united in the hands of either a single capitalist or a single capitalist company. So he actually uses the term given society which I, I, th I think he's referring to a nation, but it's hard to tell. It's not 100% clear. Right, but does it matter whether it's a nation or a globalized economy? That's That doesn't change the operation of the law of value. Here's the, here's the issue, though. The enforcement of the law of value. The law of value, you could say, is a law, but what makes it a law? I mean, it's not that God says, you know, Thou shalt accumulate, right? Uh, the law is enforced by something. And what it's enforced by is competition. And if you have one single entity throughout the world, how, how is it enforced? It, it isn't. You need some kind of competition to make the law 
compulsory toward the individual capitalist. In other words, something that they have to obey this law because if they don't, they lose the battle of competition. Now, you know, there's the classical competition where if you produce at too high a cost, you either get less profit or you price yourself, your stuff too high and lose customers and you can't grow and so forth. There's that kind of just regular commercial competition. In, in the USSR, they weren't subject to that kind of stuff because they didn't tend to, during that period of time, compete on the world market in terms of the, the, the markets for, for goods and services. But see, the, what Dernievskaya points to is another form that competition can take. And it took place in a very, very lethal way. It was the competition for world supremacy. Russia was locked into this battle to maintain itself with the workers not in control. And you got the the hostile Western capitalist powers. The the only thing left is for them to try to be what they viewed as uh, socialism in one country. They had to catch up with and outdistance the capitalist lands, in other words, the Western capitalist, private capitalist countries. And so they were in this drive for military dominance and, and military superiority that they eventually you know, lost. So that's another form that competition took. And, and that was the form of competition that really was driving the hot health development of Russia, you know, very rapid growth uh, and the expansion of means of production as against means of consumption. Because, you know, you have all this military hardware and the military production itself, you know, became very crucial uh, for that economy. So, I mean, that's all driven by competition, although it doesn't look like competition that you get in the the markets of the West and so forth. Do you get more stuff? No, you got the stuff that you've got. So it's actually very simple, very basic economics here is that what's driving what workers get is how much of their consumption goods have been produced, you know, and not the the amount of money that's paid uh, to them. Okay, because the the prices just rise, and you can say we're going to fix the prices, but it's it's crazy. Is that that that, that that's never going to work, and it, it didn't work. Well, that makes sense. Thanks for clearing that up, Andrew. Um, we are out of time for this episode of Radio for Humanity. I hope people check out the piece, "The Nature of the Russian Economy." We will link to it and hope that they think of comments and questions to send us on this topic. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by marxisthumanistinitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies.